Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on the business of law. I'm Nicole Giantonio, our founder and host. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guests are front and center in the conversation on law firm diversity. Our first guest is the managing director of the largest re-entry platform for female lawyers and other professionals returning to the workforce after an extended career break. On-ramp fellowship managing director and COO of Diversity Lab, Jennifer Winslow, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Jennifer. Joining Jennifer is a leader of the Diversity Lab's Mansfield Rule Initiative. She has a background in research and knowledge sharing and leverages data, behavioral science, and design thinking as she assists law firms and legal departments in their quest to boost diversity. Diversity Lab Director Lisa Kirby, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, I'm also glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Great to have you both as guests on our program. Lisa, we're going to start our interview with a question on the Mansfield Rule. The Mansfield Rule was a winning idea from the Diversity Lab 2016 Women in Law Hackathon. Can you describe the goals and structure of the program for our audience? Specifically, what's new and driving the Mansfield Rule 2.0? Sure. So the goal of the Mansfield Rule is to diversify leadership in law firms. And it was inspired by the NFL's Rooney Rule. And it was an idea that was pitched at the 2016 Women in Law Hackathon. And the structure is pretty simple. It asks law firms to certify that they have considered at least 30% women minorities and now LGBTQ plus lawyers for specified leadership roles and promotions and senior level lateral hiring. So the overall goal, as I mentioned, is to move the needle on diversifying law firm leadership as it has not moved very quickly or very far, at least in the last two decades, even though women have been half of law school classes for that time. And minorities have been an increasingly large portion of law school graduates as well. So the three sort of sub goals and, you know, in addition to just moving the needle generally are there are three of them. And the first one is to establish tracking and documentation norms so that firms can measure where they are and where they're going. That's not the most exciting sounding sub goal, but it actually is critically important because it provides the sort of built in accountability. We think that measuring and metrics are a really important part of a successful diversity and inclusion program or really any new initiative or change initiative in any organization. So that's a really important part. The second sort of sub goal is to broaden management's awareness of leaders in the pipeline and broaden their perspective on who could be a potential leader within the firm. And the third goal is to increase transparency in how these promotion and advancement processes happen. So a lot of times how this all works can be a bit of an unintentional black box at law firms. And then only certain groups or subgroups may have access to this sort of inside info on how it works. So we wanted to open it up and make it transparent and accessible to everyone. So they learn not only what are the responsibilities of leaders in the firms, but how does it all happen? So for 2.0, 
the new things this year. So one of our overarching approach, I guess, is definitely very grounded in design thinking. So we want to iterate each year and the last year was our first pilot and we want to continue iterating and sort of testing out these prototypes to keep improving and keep moving the needle faster and more effectively. So we worked with a task force of participants in the Mansfield 1.0 pilot to come to a consensus and hear feedback. And we listened to feedback from every participating firm. Our task force helped us craft the iteration that we just launched for Mansfield 2.0. A few major changes, we added LGBTQ plus lawyers to the in consideration requirements. So women, minorities, and LGBTQ plus lawyers to continue being as inclusive as possible. We also, going to the transparency goal, we asked law firms, what of the categories that they have to certify is that they have either leadership job descriptions, so that they have leadership job descriptions and that those are accessible to all lawyers in the firm and that the processes of how to become a leader, get promoted or appointed or elected are also available to everyone in the firm. And we also added back in an idea that came out of the original hackathon proposal, which was to include the category of participating in formal pitches, formal client pitches. So we didn't include all of that to start with. As Karen Stacy, our CEO, says, we didn't want the rule to collapse under its own weight. So we wanted to start off with something practical and doable that still was ambitious. And so kind of reserved the formal pitches category for 2.0 with the um, blessing of our task force. So very good. So excellent. Thank you. That was a great review of the program. I have two questions. What was the goal for the number of firms that would sign on and be part of the Mansfield rule for this initial period? So for the initial period that we launched in 2017, we started with 44 law firms that were truly trailblazers and wanting to test this out with us publicly and try something completely new. And then we launched Mansfield 2.0 with 65 firms, so definitely some more momentum and a lot more firms. The test to become certified is just for the firms, they have to certify that they considered at least 30% women and minorities for these specified positions. And then with the addition of LGBTQ plus lawyers for 2.0. So we have a certification form with these specific roles and committees spelled out in more detail, but that's sort of overall how it works. Thank you. And I have to say, from thinking back to my days, I worked, I was an executive at Xerox and then at ADP. And I remember talking about our LGBTQ numbers. And one of the things that came up often as we were talking about ensuring diversity was having people identify in that category. How does the rule take into account identification of lawyers, especially in a category that lawyers may not want to come forward? That's a really interesting question. Firms have approached this in different ways. There are firms where you can identify and then indicate how you're self-identifying. So if you wish to identify as LGBTQ+, or any as a member of any other demographic or your gender, you can specify how that information is used, whether it's for all purposes or only for internal purposes or, you know, ask your permission if they want to use it to respond to a client RFP, etc. So there are different ways that firms have approached this and they're kind of testing out different ways of getting people.
people to self-identify in a way that feels sort of good for everyone. Heather's good information, but also is accurate. So it's sort of a new area, but a lot of firms already have pretty well-established self-identification processes though. So it fits right into that to some degree, but definitely nobody wants people to feel they have to identify when they don't want to. But if your firm is participating in the Mansfield rule, it's a good sign that they are truly committed to building an inclusive culture and want to be supportive and want this information so that they can, you know, make sure they are being as inclusive as possible when they are doing succession planning and sort of considering the next generation of leaders at the firm. Looking at the past and how decisions were made for promotions, definitely for pitch teams and and how accounts were relationship partner status was transferred. I mean, there was a lot of concerns, but we'll come back to that in a minute, Lisa. Jennifer, let's jump into the OnRamp Fellowship Program launched in 2014. I have to say I was excited to see that it's expanded beyond lawyers specifically and women lawyers to other professions. Tell our listeners more about the structure of the program, specifically where it's come from its beginning in 2014, and really for you, what's been the most surprising part of working with the program and in the program and the different firms that have supported it? Certainly. So, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I have been working on the OnRamp Fellowship since we launched it, as you said, in 2014, in January 2014, we opened up the application process for the very first pilot of the program where we had four law firms signed on to try this with us. Again, this was the first project that Diversity Lab has ever done. The OnRamp Fellowship was the brainchild of Karen Stacy, who had 20 years of experience working in talent development and recruiting in law firms and had seen over and over again the phenomena of seeing a resume across her desk with somebody who had just outstanding credentials, you know, the right law schools, the right law firms, people who had there not been a gap on their resume, her hiring partners would have been clamoring all over themselves to bring on board, but they had a gap. They hadn't been practicing for a few years. And because of that, there just wasn't a place for them. And nobody really knew how to make them fit in. Where do they fit in the hierarchy? We obviously can't go by their grad year anymore because they've got this gap and maybe their skills are rusty and we don't know how much to pay them. We don't know how much to build them out at. We don't know if they really even want to still be doing this. So all these questions and she never on all the time she saw these resumes coming through, she never got any traction. So that was kind of the genesis of the fellowship was trying to figure out a way to alleviate the concerns that she saw coming from the law firm side and still enable these people, predominantly women, to re-enter the profession in sort of a win-win fashion because obviously these are, you know, these are people who had a lot of smarts and experience that law firms need. And we also had, of course, the problem that Lisa had alluded to earlier, where, you know, 50% of the students coming out of law school now are women. And it's about equal when you look at associate entering classes in big law. And yet you get up into, you know, the senior ranks of equity partnership and management committees and the leadership levels. And then it's dropped to, you know, 19 to 23%, depending on which statistic you're looking at, women versus men. And so, you know, this idea was, look, let's try and find a way to get these, again, predominantly 
Valley women back into the profession. You know, this is a way to replenish the pipeline. So because of her experience, she sort of thought through all of the objections she'd heard, and we created the fellowship with all those things in mind. So we worked with the four firms, Cooley, Sidley, Baker Botts, and Hogan Levels, and said, you know, we're going to do an extensive screening process. We're going to have them do assessments where we have objective factors that tell us about what their skills look like. We're going to also look at some of the traits that we know from Karen's earlier work at uh, Lawyer Metrics. You know, we know what traits make a successful attorney. So we're going to look at those things too. We're going to have our applicants do a writing assessment designed by Ross Guberman. And we'll have these objective data to present to you about this person's skills and traits and where they're at. So we kind of get past that. Well, can they still be a lawyer? You know, did they lose their brain while they were out of, out on leave or whatever? Like, no, they didn't actually. And we can show you this. You know, we do an extensive behavioral interview with them as well so that we are spending time getting to know them, not just what their previous experience was, but, you know, why it is they want to come back to make sure that they really do want to come back and they really do want to come back full time and to a law firm and all of everything that goes along with that, you know, and then, you know, we worked with the law firms, matching them up with candidates. We did studies at each of the law firms to find out about their culture, their values, to find out what makes a successful lawyer in that environment. And we used all of this data and all of this kind of, you know, matching process. We ended up, we asked those four law firms in 2014, we said, please just try and hire one fellow for a one-year fellowship. They'll have a stipend, so you won't be paying them. It won't be market. You'll still be paying them a great wage, but it's going to be below market. So you have some wiggle room as far as billable rates go. We're going to ask that you give them reduced billable hours expectations, though, in kind of that trade-off, you know, and to make sure that she has the room to truly on-ramp. So she's got time to get herself back up to speed, to do some shadowing. You know, it's going to take her a little bit longer to write those first few motions after having been away. So we built all of that into the program. Those four law firms ended up hiring nine fellows for that first project, which was amazing. And, you know, they were there for their one-year fellowship. They, you know, we provided them with some training opportunities where we got together on the phone every month and just kind of talked through issues. It was kind of like group therapy, but that really helped them because they knew that, you know, these other women were going through the same process at the same time. And, you know, the law firms were thrilled. They were really happy with how it worked out. And we started getting calls pretty quickly from other law firms. And it has just kind of snowballed from there. From that original four law firms, we now have... We work with 31 different law firms, seven legal departments, and as you alluded to, we worked with the compliance department, Barclays, and that was our our (laughs) non-lawyer expedition. And those three fellows in the compliance department had an amazing experience and are all three still in the compliance department at Barclays in permanent full-time positions. And we've now had, there's 72 fellows in the program, including those who have graduated and have moved on into their regular positions. It's been just an amazing success. How fantastic. And what a great success for the market to just look at this experience and say that we have to build these types of programs. So the first question, though, Jennifer, is what was the longest gap? What was the longest gap of a fellow that has gone through the program and successfully been able to be placed and then matriculate? 
The longest hiatus was 24 years. So the program requires a minimum of two years away in the hiatus. And that can really, we have a a broad definition of the hiatus. So we recognize that a lot of times what happens is, you know, being full-time at a law firm or in a legal department is just not going to work for someone trying to balance other things in their life. So sometimes they'll opt out for a little bit and then they'll kind of start to work their way back in through a contract position or through part-time work. So we've basically said if you've been unemployed or underemployed because you weren't able to get back in because you've taken time away, that certainly counts as a hiatus. And so a minimum of two years away and a minimum of three years of post-licensure legal experience. And that was really came from the law firm saying, you know, we want to be sure that they've already gone through that initial training at some point, that they're comfortable in this environment that they sort of know what they're getting into. And so that's kind of been the basics. And it's not just the one person for 24 years. We've had several that have been in the kind of the 16 to 24 year range for as far as their hiatuses go. And they've done really, really well to their surprise, to our surprise, to the law firm's surprise. But, you know, those fellows typically come back in with their eyes wide open. They're often empty nesters as well. You know, that gap is often kind of coincides with when, you know, you have the kids and then you get the kids off to college. And they're really so excited to come back and give all they have to their return. And they have truly been some of the most successful fellows we have because they, you know, like I said, they know exactly what they're getting back into. They're excited for it. And they are just, they're all over it. It's really great. My immediate response when I hear those numbers is what are the challenges? And I can imagine the technology, the change that has occurred in the way we work. It might be one of the challenges. I can imagine that first call after someone who's been out of the market from a full-time basis for 24 years saying, okay, what is go to meeting or what are those challenges? Our favorite story is from one of the women who was out for 20 plus years. And she was one of our first fellows. And she's an extraordinary woman who is still at her fellowship firm and doing wonderfully there. But she did call us one evening to say, someone just told me to PDF them. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And this was the thing that really we've sort of seen because yes, absolutely what you're saying is correct. Technology has changed so much. And it's almost universal because even if you've been out just two years, things change so quickly now that, you know, you could be sitting on a whole new system than what you were using before you left. So it's pretty well a universal universal challenge. But what we found is that, you know, the most successful fellows are the one who handle things the way that this particular fellow did. You know, she called and she kind of laughed with us. But at the same time, she was on Google and she was trying to figure it out. And she was finding somebody on the night staff at her firm who could help her out with this. So it was, you know, it was kind of a funny little anecdote that she shared with us, but it wasn't a deal breaker for her. You know, she was like, okay, I don't know what a PDF is. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure how that could be a verb but okay, I'm going to figure it out. And she did. And, you know, that kind of resilience and, you know, problem solving is really one of the hallmarks of this group of women that are our fellows because, you know, they just kind of run with it. Absolutely. And I can see the value of having someone who is balanced in their approach and able to respond to feedback and make adjustments. And now a word from today's sponsor. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com backslash left foot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com backslash left foot. There are some great advantages of having a diverse workforce. They really cover what we imagine, right? The opportunity to work with customers and show that diverse team that's walking into that customer or working on a particular matter or case. And then, of course, we've got the diversity of thought. Lisa, let's start with you. As you've walked in or worked with firms on the Mansfield rule, how often are they talking about diversity of thought? Is that something that comes up? You know, what are the goals that you're finding the law departments and the law firms are coming to the diversity lab to achieve? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is the increased push from clients to field more diverse teams. In the last couple of years, clients have become more aggressive in some ways and use different methods that they use and they're sort of drilling deeper and interrogating firms on a different level than they were just five or 10 years ago about the diversity of their teams. And so law firms are feeling that pressure. They, All the firms that have worked with us have genuinely cared about diversity and inclusion for a long time too. Legal departments have told us that, you know, with the Mansfield rule and other programs, they feel like on ramp too, definitely. They feel like participation in these programs shows that firms are genuinely committed to doing the work needed to foster and sustain diversity and inclusion at their firms. And they're sort of going outside the box a little and it's more than just talk because every firm touts its commitment to diversity and inclusion, but it is an easy way to evaluate who is truly or more deeply committed. And I do think, too, there has been a lot more research recently on diverse teams and how they financially outperform teams that are less diverse, how they are more innovative. And so I think a lot of that research has kind of filtered through to law firm leaders. People are, there's now more scientific evidence of the importance of diverse teams, especially now when innovation is becoming even more important in the legal sector. So I think there's that. And I think that there's more focus and more awareness of unconscious bias and its effects. And similarly, there's more research and data on that. There are a lot of Harvard Business Review articles. There have been so many studies done where this sort of previously somewhat ephemeral seeming idea has really hardened or sort of solidified into some really interesting, rigorously produced data. So I think there is also this understanding that there is real bias at play in our structures and systems and the way that things have kind of organically come up over the last hundred years in the legal profession. So I think some of that too is influencing firms' mindsets or firm leaders' mindsets as they consider what direction to go in. What kind of pushback do you get? It's not that there haven't been challenges. There definitely have been. There are some firms who really aren't ready to take a risk in this way because they're going to be publicly on a list and they're worried that they won't be certified. So I think they want to do some work on the back end on their pipeline so they could be in a position to consider women, minorities, and LGBTQ plus lawyers for these positions. So I think that that has been the case with some firms, but I mean, it's just been an incredible amount of 
enthusiasm, especially now that we've tested it the first year and had such positive results. So I think that that has been the main issue with firms that are reluctant to take a risk, but we've been so lucky to have all of these, you know, as I mentioned, trailblazing firms that have been willing to kind of go out on a limb with us and test something new. I'm sure it was a wake-up call for many firms who thought they were doing well in this area. You know, just having data, it can be good or bad. You know, it's just most firms were not tracking this at all. I think only one of our findings was that only 20% of law firms were tracking the diversity of their candidate pools for recruiting. Prior to the Mansfield rule, I think only like 30% were tracking the diversity of candidates for leadership positions. So just having the numbers enables you to do so much more and to be more strategic about how you want to move forward. There was one firm, at least one firm that told me that once they actually looked at the numbers, they realized they were considering 50% women and minorities for senior recruiting positions, but they just hadn't realized it. And then hadn't honestly been getting credit for that or sort of taking, you know, being recognized for that, which they were actually going above and beyond, but hadn't really known that or had hard evidence of it. So in some cases, it can show you that you are doing well, and then you know how to continue doing what you're doing, which is being successful. So it's interesting. Jennifer, similar question. Pushback about the program. I would imagine there's some cost and probably more risk than the Mansfield rule because of these lawyers are going to be touching client work. What's been the pushback? Really the pushback, you know, other than as Lisa mentioned, you know, trying something new and different that hasn't been done before, which is always a risk. And, you know, as we all know, law firms tend to not want to be the first one to try anything. So the fact that we were able to get four to try was pretty amazing. Amazing. Really, it's all of those same objections that we talked about before. You know, are they going to be okay, you know, if I leave them in a room with a client? You know, has it just been too long? Again, that sort of idea of, you know, you lose your brain if you're not, you know, being a lawyer every single day. You know, then just kind of structure-wise, you know, how do we fit them in? What kind of work do we give them? How do we introduce them to a client? Like all of these kinds of just questions, which weren't really objections so much as they were just questions and, you know, how is this all going to work? So we, you know, were able to work closely again, because we started with just those five firms and kind of, you know, the way that Diversity Lab approaches everything, which is let's figure it out together. Let's test it out. Let's find what works, what doesn't work. And then, you know, we'll do a new iteration. What lessons can you share for those firms who are either not feeling that they're having an impact with their diversity programs or are just really starting to say, we want to show results, we want to show measurable results? And Lisa, we'll start with you. You know, what lessons have you learned in your launch of the Mansfield Rule and Mansfield Rule 2.0 that could be helpful to those firms? Measurement and accountability has really been the missing element from a lot of really great and well-intentioned diversity initiatives in the past. And I think that is why they sometimes tend to fizzle out because if we're not measuring as we go, kind of taking a baseline and then continually measuring what's working and what's not, and then publicly sharing that in some way, whether public means within the firm or within the leadership group or what have you, but continually checking and sharing, I think a lot tends to get lost because you don't know what's working and what's not working, what elements of these programs are working or not working. You don't know and why. And then so you don't know what you should change or what you should sort of expand or double down on. 
people in the firm tend to get a little bit cynical about what's happening because you will often hear a lot of fanfare when these programs launch and there is a lot of genuine excitement and you'll have maybe new terminology you're supposed to be using or what have you. And then maybe a couple of years in, you kind of start hearing as much about it and you feel like it, well, you're, no one's really sure what happened with it. And maybe it fizzled out and it, or it might still be in progress. And I think that is all traceable back to a lack of accountability and measurement because you just have no way of knowing what's happening with it. So I think the Mansfield rule that's been a really key element from day one, we have shared information, we gathered data at the six month point and publicly shared that on our website. We are crunching the numbers now from the conclusion of the first year pilot and we'll share that as well in another data report. And then, so I think that is really, it's not the like sexiest or most exciting thing to talk about. It's seen as more of a back office kind of a job and it just doesn't have that cachet that, you know, sort of saying a new mentoring program or something does. So it's not as much, I think there's, it's been a little bit neglected, but I think that is by far the key element to a diversity program. I'm a big believer if you can't manage what you don't measure and you can't manage your diversity if you're not measuring it. So that is a key component. Thank you. So Jennifer, lessons learned in the launch of the on-ramp program or in the coaching of those critical fellows out in the market? We put a lot of time and effort into the idea of, you know, training and the hard skills and the soft skills and all of these things. What universally has been the thing that fellows tell us is the most important to them of the on program are these cohort calls. They have become so important to the fellows because we've seen that there really is kind of a flow to the year for a fellow. In fact, we just created a timeline where we can really tell you, you know, the first two months are going to be about this. Then you're going to go through a chunk that does this. And then here you're going to be kind of freaking out because you're at the end of your fellowship and you're trying to find out what's going to happen afterwards. And so having this small group of people who are going through this same process along with you and are having kind of this same fears and the same issues has been remarkable. And we have a coach who facilitates the calls. I don't know if you know Ellen Ostro, but she's just this amazing woman who actually has been facilitating our cohort calls since the very, very beginning of the program. So almost five years now, she's talked to every single one of the fellows. She's there. But what we find is that the fellows really crowdsource their problem solving with each other. So they'll, you know, they'll give each other pep talks. They'll talk strategies. They'll say, you know, this is something that I found works for me. Could you try it in your situation? And they just really hold each other up and help each other because, you know, there's 72 of them, but they're all across the country. They're all in different firms. You know, even, you know, the 11 Sidley fellows are, you know, spread across the country in different groups. And so just having this time once a month where they can get on the call and talk to each other and say, oh my gosh, this just happened. I don't know what to do. And then, you know, four or five other people will pipe up and say, what about this? Or, oh gosh, yeah, that happened to me last week. Let me tell you what I did. And just share sharing ideas and lifting each other up has proved so crucial. And we just actually, because we've kind of hit some milestones in the program, and next year we're going to sort of celebrate the five-year anniversary of the program, we started in a, an alumni support council. So we've got some women who are alumni of the program who are helping us to shape the direction of what we're going to be doing for this ever-growing population of people. 
people who are graduates of the on-ramp program. And when we ask them, you know, what's the one thing that you wish we could bring back from when you were a fellow? They all said cohort calls. Like, can we have cohort calls again? I really wish I missed my cohort. <laughs> and that really told us something that we had sort of sensed anecdotally. And then we heard it from them that that just is such an important part, which is not to say that the training and all of the other things aren't important and aren't a huge part of the success of the program. But I think that, you know, having that support has really been a, a crucial part of it as well. Jennifer, Lisa, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Our episodes are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and leftfoot.com. 